0: Welcome to the Interconnected Podcast. I'm Sahiti, and here with us today we
1: have Pam, Parveen, Sanjana,
2: and Faith. This podcast is brought to you by the leaders of Kenneth Young Center's Youth Advisory Council, funded in whole or in part by the Illinois Department of Human Services, Division of Substance Use Prevention and Recovery, and the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Our mission as part of the Youth Advisory Council is to foster change in our communities, all youth-led.
3: We, brought to you, we bring this podcast to you because of the current events in today's world. Due to the passing of George Floyd's death by poli- police brutality, this was an imperial po- catalyst for people to support the Black Lives Matter movement. However, that sounds great, but people more so treat it as a trend and, it, and something to support their image. Today, we encourage you to look at the information we provide you, and we strive to provide as much objective information about the social injustices against Black persons, and for you, our audience, to formulate your own opinions.
0: So the first topic we wanted to talk about was systemic racism what it is and how we see it in our daily lives. So, systemic racism is basically the idea that systems and structures have procedures or processes in place that disadvantage Black Americans. So, one way we see this on a daily basis is in our wealth gap. In 2010, Black Americans only made about thir- only make up 13% of the population but had 2. 7% of the country's wealth. There's a great disparity in that number. Moving on, the median net worth for a white family was $134,000, but for a black family, it was only $11,000. Just looking at those numbers statistically, you can tell that how big of a difference there is. It's systemically rooted in our system for black Americans to make less than white Americans if anybody wants to add to that before we move on to the next area.
4: Yeah, we can talk about employment as well. Um, For the last 60 years, black unemployment has always been about twice as high as white unemployment. If you apply for a job with a white sounding name, you're 50% more likely to get a call back than with a black sounding name. So this shows that the institution of workplaces and of employment is systematically biased against black Americans.
1: And what we also need to take a look at is that this systemic and inherent bias extends far beyond just uh, social circles and the culture of our society. You can also see it prevalent in the form of mass incarceration. If you uh, look at the metrics, out of every 100,000 Americans, about 700 are incarcerated. But if you look at Black, this demographic of Black men, out of every 100,000, Over 4,000 are incarcerated.
3: Did you know black persons are three times more likely to get killed by police than of white persons? Did you also know that black people are 24% of the people who are killed by police, but only 13% of the population? Now, this is data that you can easily search online, but I feel as though there. are are some aspects to black culture specifically that aren't talked about, which is hereditary trauma. Um, I am a person of mixed, what is that, pubescence? Uh, I have a black mother and a white father, and I learned a lot from black culture by my mother, and a lot of the stuff that we tend to do, we just write it off as, oh, that's just how we are, that's how black people work. But I believe it's due to hereditary trauma from our ancestors. What is hereditary trauma? It's transgenerational trauma is another word from it. It refers to the trauma that is passed through generations. This idea is that not only someone who experienced the trauma, they can also pass down the symptoms and behaviors who might further the trauma and pass it on Down more generations, such as your grandchildren. So, for instance, if you need a better understanding of what this is, our ancestors were slaves, and I think we pretty much all can agree how messed up that was and the hardships that our ancestors had to deal with. Now, due to those hardships, we do things culturally that are okay. For instance, you can't just do mediocre, right? You have to do better than anybody else because that's the only way you're going to make it as a black person. And that's what I was taught, you know, and now that I think about it, the older I get one that shouldn't be right because we should all have equal opportunities
0: Mm -hmm. yet
3: growing up in a world to where you see George Floyd, you know, Breonna Taylor, Tamir Rice, let me not go on. You know, it's obvious. That's just the obvious case of injustices of people not valuing black lives or their thoughts and opinions. But what about the stuff that isn't so obvious, like the systematic racism and the un, the covert racism of people who don't even know they're being racist? This is stuff that you have to, you have to calculate as a psychologist, hopefully in my future. Uh, you have to think about that and how that affects people mentally. Imagine having to always feel that people are against you or the world is not in support of your hopes and dreams. There's some people who don't have to think like that, and that's called privilege.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So I'll throw it next to the next
4: topic. Yeah. I talk about is how um, something that Faith was touching on is that mental health care is affected by socioeconomic issues, um, especially in communities that are of people of color, especially black and African-American communities. They hold beliefs related to stigma, psychological openness, and help-seeking, which in turn affects their coping behaviors. So, you know, there's also a stigma because of this generational trauma to against seeking out mental health help.
3: And I want to add on, sorry to end Oh, up. go ahead. <laughs> but if you just listen to the data that we just shared, you know, we as black Americans have what three times more unemployment. We don't make as much money as our white mm-hmm. counterparts. And mental health care, trust me, baby, it's not free, <laughs> you know. Like and I in my opinion, due to the statistics in our history, we're the ones who need mm-hmm. most. Yet we're not available to those resources and health care.
4: And I think, you know, this issue, it just goes beyond us talking about it. You know, if you're listening to this, you got to recognize it in your own communities. You know, you have to say, hey, I see, I know that this systematic racism exists in this institution. We didn't talk about the school system, but it exists there, too. We didn't talk about the government, but it exists there, too. You have to go out there and open your eyes and see that there are issues that exist in every single system. Mm
2: -hmm. And that's just the first step to it. Once you become aware, you can't just sit down and stay silent. You need to go out there and group up with some peers and make the change that you need to see in those communities in order to help out um your neighbors and your relatives and your classmates and your teachers. And what's really
1: important as a young change maker is that because you recognize the structures that create oppression from uh, wage gaps to disparities in healthcare, what we need to do as the next generation is to use our insight to create meaningful change, to identify the mechanisms that are causing systemic oppression and do something. Because the intersectionality of all these different uh, oppressive systems is what is gonna continue to uh, further racial injustice.
0: And here's the thing, oppression has been going on since, like, the 1600s, and it Mm -hmm. will continue if we don't stop it. We need to break that cycle, and now is the time.
4: I
3: agree. I'm interjecting again. (laughs) Go
0: ahead. It's okay.
3: Uh, Personally, in my generation, I feel as though we're more susceptible to change than prior Mm -hmm. generations. I feel like we're able to call it out and name, like, hey, you know this isn't right, or this is what I see I want to learn more, even though I don't know exactly what's going on. So you, the people who are listening, no matter if you have experience in being a leader or if you never made change before, it's never too late. You got this, and you need to call it out, and you can make change for somebody else who doesn't want to use their voice.
4: I would just like to say something really quickly, and we talked a lot about oppression. Um, So oppression is the prolonged cruel or unjust treatment of a group of people by harnessing prejudice and discrimination within legal, social, and day-to-day contexts. Um, So this is just like a really quick definition if um, you weren't sure what we were talking about.
3: Great point.
4: So as we've seen, in the recent everyday context. Um, you probably have heard about the murder of George Floyd. You probably heard about the death of Breonna Taylor as she was shot by police when she was sleeping. Um, and this has really brought to light a conversation that, should have, that has been going on in black communities, but is only really now being recognized by the rest of white America um, and the rest of non-black America, which is um, police brutality. So before we touch on that, we wanna talk about the history of the police system. And it was essentially created to enforce the Fugitive Slave Act and to catch runaway slaves. Um, so we know slavery was one of those oppressive systems that we were talking about. And the Fugitive Slave Act is a law, another institution that, is opp- that causes oppression. And um, this is where the police started. So in 1704, slave patrols first formed in South Carolina because white Southerners lived in fear of possible slave rebellions. But these slave patrols formally dissolved after the end of the Civil War. But the early forms of policing were slave patrols and they controlled the movement of slaves. They inflicted physical and psychological abuse such as whippings, breaking up families, starvation, and to make sure that slaves didn't rebel. And I think an example of how we can see that this system still lasts today is if you look at the police badges that police Mm -hmm. sheriffs wear, it's that star, but it's the same star that slave patrols wore, wore, that same badge. Um, I know it's the podcast, you don't know what I'm talking about, but if you've ever seen those sheriff badges. So... Policing is inherently anti-Black. It's how it started, and some of the very same practices that slave patrols used are still being used by the police today. The same training tactics are still being used by the police today. So we need to recognize the anti-Black and racist history of the institution of policing.
3: Agree, And just because it started that way, don't think that it still doesn't go on today. You know, we don't want to get in too deep. That's so two of the adjacent laws of then and now. But you can see it, you know. Our police brutality is defined by civil rights violation in which officers excessively, verbally, or physically use force against civilians. And specifically, we're talking about black civilians. There is a statistic that we brought up in the beginning of the podcast of how black individuals are more harmed by police than any other race, especially white individuals. I don't think that that's uh, an occurrence, in my opinion. Examples of police brutality include torture, property damage, verbal and physical assault, intimidation, false arrest, and murder. Mm-hmm. What does defund the police mean? I'm sure you've seen this all over social media. You've seen people say we have to do it, but we don't do it. What does it mean? Defunding the police means to gradually reduce or abolishing police budgets and power on a local and state level. This also means to invest money directly into poor communities via public services. Reform of the police is not working. Procedural reforms are changes to police department protocols, like implicit bias, training, mindfulness, and police community encounters. These reforms cost cities millions, even billions, like in New York City. Did you know in the last 40 years, police power in jurisdiction has expanded massively, especially in poor communities of color? police have historically adopted an aggressive war on crime mentally that leaves black people in prison or killed. Instead of investing in poor communities of color, cities respond by increasing police presence and granting them manageable authority. That's why a lot of people bring up the fact that polices are more in black communities or people of color communities mm-hmm. because they believe that people of color are the threats. Mm-hmm. That's not always the case. Police budgets are consistently increased, yet funding for community institutions like schools, hospitals, and libraries are slashed. As a result, infrastructure in poor communities deteriorates, and police are used as a solution to solve every social problem. Research illustrates that crime is a response to social conditions, so by defunding the police and redirecting the money into communities, violent crime is reduced and the communities are uplifted.
2: Um, I kind of want to add on to like defunding the police and investing in social services. Um, mm-hmm. I was watching an Instagram live um, and it was between um, the news platform Now This and um, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, um, a US House representative. And um, ALC made a really good point in saying that when your house is on fire, they bring in the firefighters to put out the fire. But why don't we start in trying to prevent the fire in the first place instead of just attending to the fire whenever it occurs? And I think that's the same thing that's going on in our communities. The you shouldn't have police as a solution to the problem. When they are the catalyst of the problem that is occurring. Yeah, I think that they're the fire. I think that defunding the police and investing in social services like housing and education will, I feel like these people of color and um, black individuals, they they face injustice for petty crimes that they do out of spite of survival in a lot of cases um, when they can't afford food or when they can't afford to take care of their children or send them to school um, or pay rent. And that's because of the lack of funds that we have going towards these social services. So right. if we try and keep them out of there by funding these social services and taking a cut out of our police um, service, then I don't see why, I just don't see why everyone is opposed to defunding the police.
1: The, the fundamental, need- oh. oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go it- ahead, it's fine. The fundamental argument behind defunding the police is that instead of having people who are in positions of authority, armed with weapons, patrolling in neighborhoods they most likely don't even reside in, that Mm -hmm. the people who really make up the fabric of that community are looking out for each other. The people who should be responding to crises in that community are the people who are best equipped to deal with those crises taking away the res- uh, reducing the responsibilities of the police and giving it to people who are enrolled roles such as mental health service providers or social workers or just neighbors and friends? Finding alternatives to policing by reinvesting in the community.
0: Exactly.
1: So we were. I was about... Go ahead. So we were talking about the police state and the police institution, police brutality, the history of that system. But once we look at the modern day political climate, America's red, white, and blue is no longer as united as it once was. And what we really need to reflect on is the intersectionality of racist ideology in American history. So if we look at one example of a legislative Long-term impact of racist ideology, an anti-lynching bill that has been tried that policymakers have been trying to pass for two hundred years. This bill has still been stalled. In modern day, in the modern day political climate, we have yet to pass an anti-lynching bill. I
3: wonder if y'all have heard. I should Google the name, but an individual was hanged and to my opinion it was a very obvious
0: lynching mm-hmm.
4: but um they wrote it off as a speech. i saw really? that and that has happened yeah. multiple so many times yes.
0: wow
3: what about the man who's the only black individual in nascar mm-hmm. some type of yeah. car
4: competition they had a noose yep. outside of his Bubba wallace that. like what his name was bubba wallace and he's the only um yep. i think like uh, top, re- like he's the, the only person in NASCAR's first circuit who's black. Um, and I think that also speaks volumes. That's great. If you look at NASCAR, it was only recently that they removed the Confederate flag, that they banned the Confederate flag, excuse me, mm-hmm. from being displayed at their facilities. It took until 2020 for them to do that. Right. And for the listeners who
3: are infuriated, you have every right to be infuriated. And in my opinion, you should use that anger to make change or identify the injustices within where you reside
4: or in your school's institutions. Um, so youth voice is really important in these discussions, and we really want to make sure we're uplifting them. However, we're not professionals
3: by no yeah. means. We're just trying to give you our untended opinions and bare bones facts. So please... Be weary of the words we may say because we are human.